This morning is really a continuation of last week's message, introducing us to the recipients of the book of 1 Peter. Um, but it's not going to sound like it, because we're really talking about who are the recipients, and Peter gives us a little further description of them than just those that were in the dispersion, the pilgrims of the dispersion that we focused in on last week to talk about while the, the primary audience might be Jewish Christians that are spread throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the larger audience is all Christians who are dispersed throughout the earth. Uh, and we do not anticipate, neither does Peter, a gathering together in one nation like Israel of his people. And so the dispersion is really a permanent one, especially given the great commandment, uh, the great commission of our Lord, that we are to go into all the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and into, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into all the earth with the gospel. And so we have an instruction, a, a, a order by our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, to go out with the gospel everywhere we go. And, uh, and so, obviously, that requires dispersion and uh, no expectation, really, of a regathering in terms of this world and nations of this world to a specific place. Uh, we do anticipate a new Jerusalem. We do anticipate uh, a millennial kingdom uh, where we will be with Christ because Christ has said that, uh, that uh, we'll be with him, that we'll be in his presence. And that is his promise to the church and so uh, we looked beyond that last week and we saw the, the need to see not only 1 Peter, but the book of James. It also lists that it is written primarily for Jewish people, the book of Hebrews, which is in the title of the book, uh, that we understand that these scriptures are not isolated and, and just for uh, those of the Jewish uh, traditions or uh, lineage uh, or even of the law that we're well beyond that. But we come to another further description of the recipients of his letter, and that is that they are the elect ones. And we have studied this extensively in the past, and every time we come to it, we need to take it aside and examine it. Uh, we saw this in, our, in, the God, in the book of Jude, when we studied that some time ago, of chosen. What does it mean to be the chosen ones? To be chosen of the Lord in that word here, elect, is also that idea of being the chosen ones. And whenever we look at that, we often think, well, that's God coming upon humanity and being selective. And that is not really what is involved in, in the concept of the chosen ones. For, in fact, many are called, but few are chosen, is the passage we talk about. Uh, and so, obviously, God wants to have many more. He invites many more. We have parables about that, about going out and inviting people to wedding feast, and they make excuses why they can't come, and, the, and then the uh, bridegroom says, well, fine, then, then go out to the highways and byways and compel them to come in, and people come in. But then, of course, one of those who did respond and came in wasn't properly attired and was thrown out. And this all gives us a much broader concept and understanding of what it means to be the chosen. And so God has chosen to invite 
all of these to his wedding feast. And that first group in that parable really involved Israel. Those that were known to him, we're going to talk about knowledge today extensively. That's going to be our focus. And, and but I want to talk about this word chosen first. And so he went to them and they made excuses of why they would not come, could not come to the wedding. It wasn't a priority to them. And they rejected that offer. So it is very evident that God had chosen to invite them. And thus he had cho- they are among the chosen. In fact, that's one of the terminology used for Israel. Chosen people, chosen nation. Uh, but we are also now chosen because he also chose, once they rejected it, to open the door of faith to the highways and byways and, and to compel us to come in. And so we have... And again, that word compel does not mean I'm going to force you and twist your arm. It's going to be uh, this imploring, this begging you to come in. And and that that you almost can't say no to it. But it is not God coming in and enforcing his will upon your will. That is not what is involved in that term. And so we come in. And then the idea that, well, once you're in, you're in. But we find that one individual was improperly clothed for the event and the clothing of course of the righteousness of Christ that we can respond to an invitation by God that God wants us in to his wedding feast if you will to be part of the bride and and yet uh, if we have not clothed ourselves in the righteousness of Christ we will be removed cast into outer darkness it says there that's a frightening concept isn't it and so that's uh, the, the depth and breadth of this word elect, of chosen. It is shameful, really, that we have taken this word and made it this very tight, uh, some theologians have taken it and made it this very tight definition that it is a matter of who God has selected to be saved out of all sinners. And if that's what you're think the word elect entails or chosen, you could not be more wrong. And those theologians that have that narrow view of this, of this are an error, serious error. And the error isn't because I'm offended at it. The error isn't because it doesn't make any sense. The error is because they make God responsible for the lostness of men. Because that position puts God in a place of being unloving. It puts God in the place of being uh, ingracious. That he's only gracious to the elect, to the chosen, to the few out of the many. That he hands selected. And we're going to look at some differences here. And so we have already engaged this word on many occasions, but it comes up again. And, and sometimes it's translated elect, sometimes it's translated chosen. Uh, that God has chosen us. We are the chosen. Oh, who is it that God has chosen? He has chosen to invite all, and he has chosen to bless those who respond. He has chosen to grant salvation to those who trust in Jesus Christ. The chosenness isn't about selecting you out of a group. The chosenness is about what he has in store for you if you'll respond. You are the chosen. We, we are the ones to receive what he desires to bless all men with. This even goes back in the Old Testament when we look at Israel. Um, did God just want to bless Israel? No. In fact, in the Abrahamic covenant, what does he promise? He says, every nation that blesses you, I will bless. 
God says, I want to use you as an avenue to bless everybody. This is the God that we serve. This is the, the living, true God of the scriptures. Not a capricious God that says, oh, I'll bless you and I'm going to curse you. No. It is a responsive, personal being that says, I want to, you are my creation. I want to have a relationship with you. You broke it off. I will take every measure to restore that relationship, but I am not going to override who you are to accomplish that. I'm not going to bring you into a forced relationship. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction in forced relationships, ever. I, never, I would have never wanted to marry a woman that was forced to marry me by her parents or society or someone's shotgun. Um, I wouldn't want that. Would you? I'm looking at the single people to make sure they're not that desperate, okay? Well, maybe. No. Okay? No! You don't want forced relationships. Why am I so careful in evaluating children and teens in church? Why are we so cautious about that? Because I know that many of them come here because they have to. And I see teens and they're in rebellion and they're forced to come to church and that doesn't change who they are, does it? Because as soon as they have an opportunity to be independent, then they begin to express who they really are. And, and I don't care if they had the right version of the Bible, dressed the right way, or on the front row and never missed a service. If it was forced on them, it does not matter to their heart. And so God isn't going to force a relationship upon you, but he invites you to it, and he invites all men, and he has chosen to do something. And I, this is no exception. This verse is identical. So, because we're really bad grammatarians, there you go, because we don't know grammar, we get in trouble. Does it say you are elect for salvation in this verse anywhere? Let's read it together. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. I realize I haven't read it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So, that, that's... A lot there in verse 2, so let's break it down a little bit, and we're going to deal with prepositional phrases, and we're going to handle each of these prepositional phrases uh, separately because they have significance, but they all are there to describe the word elect. I was going to bring the board over and break this down and, and diagram the sentence for you. How many of you know how to diagram sentences? How many of you kind of know? I remember doing it once, okay? Um, I do a lot of diagramming sentences. If you really want to understand God's word, you should do a lot more. And so uh, here's a, a, a term, elect. And in, in Greek, it's even easier to diagram sentences because they have to agree in gender and, and tense and all those things with the noun that they are uh, describing. And so here we're describing the elect ones. How are they the elect ones? How are they chosen? How are they the chosen ones? And we have several prepositional phrases to describe that. One of those we're going to study this morning is through, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, uh, in sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have 
hear three prepositional phrases, uh, but let's break down which one tells us the purpose of the chosenness. Through is the means of our chosenness. That is that there's, there's the, the via. It is, it is, you're going from chosen and unchosen by means of. And thus it is through the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're going to talk about that. In talks about uh, the position of the chosenness. That is that, that where do we stand? Where are we located? We are in the sanctification where this is our present experience is the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that. I won't get to it this week. Uh, next week, okay? And so that'll be the end, the sanctification of the Spirit. And then we're going to say for. Now we have what? The purpose. You are chosen for something, to some end, for something, to receive something. And so the word for tells us what we are chosen for. And does it say for salvation? No. It says for obedience. This is one of the major themes of Peter that I introduced you to last week. That you are chosen for obedience. Now we're going to get to the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm not neglecting that that's also, this is a compound uh, object of the preposition. So for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're not, we're not ignoring that. We'll get to it. But I want to look at the primary reason you're chosen for obedience. Oh, I thought we were elect to be saved. No, you are elect for obedience. Please understand the sentence. Your God has chosen you for obedience. And yes, in this verse, obedience comes prior to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the first step of obedience is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first thing God calls you. You want a relationship with me? You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You become a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That he becomes your Savior, your Lord, your Master, your King, your God. And that as we respond, God responds, and we've talked about that a lot, that we have a back and forth relationship. He blesses, he provides, waits for us to respond to that provision, and then he is ready to bless. We saw this in John 14, 15, and 16 extensively. Remember, we talked about the interrelationship there. If you don't, you can go back to the podcast. Can they go back to the podcast to see that, hear that? You're looking at those, those series of sermons. It was like three months' worth. And so we have this interaction between us and God. God initiates it, waits for us to respond. We are chosen for obedience. He has chosen that those, and that's everyone that's invited, God wants all men everywhere to repent. He gives that invitation to all men, and he has instructed us to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, and that's not just a handful within all, it's, it's everyone. The invitation is there, but understand where man's response begins. You are chosen for obedience. And tell me that that has been limited to just a handful out of the entire population of the earth. No. He has chosen that all men everywhere should obey. But we who have already begun that 
path of obedience are now chosen to continue to obey. And if you think that obedience is praying the sinner's prayer on one occasion, and now I've obeyed that, so I got that check mark, kink, I'm on my way to heaven, and I don't have to obey God from there on, you don't understand biblical obedience. It's about complete surrender of myself, my will, to God's will. And thus, I will be obedient to him from this point forward. This is what we are chosen for. And this is something that Peter is going to pick up on, and we're going to see repeated again and again and again, especially in the early chapters of Peter, 1 Peter, that you're here to obey. You're supposed to be obeying God. This is the evidence, and this is what James tries to bring out. Listen, there should be uh, some works behind your faith. Faith without works is a dead faith. It accomplishes nothing. It's purpose. It's vain. It's empty. And so we are chosen, we are elect for obedience. That God has chosen and, and laid that out, and anyone that desires to come to him has to come to him, can come to him, but they come to him his way. And his chosen way for you to come to him is your obedience. And so get out of your mind that when you see the word elect, this means that God has selected you. You know, like you lined up for kickball at, on the playground and, and you had two captains picking their team out of the lineup. And that usually meant I was one of the last ones because I was a scrawny little kid in grade school, like really scrawny. And I was fast, but I was scrawny. I always get picked about last. You're saying, oh, no one's going to select me. And we think that God's that way. And he isn't. He's called everyone. But he said, you're, you can, everyone can come, but you're going to have to come by obedience. Not your own way. My way. The invitation is out there to all men. God is not the selector of men. But he has chosen the way. And that way is Jesus Christ we're going to talk about. But it begins by your response to his provision. And your response is obedience. We are chosen for obedience. And while we're going to look at these other things and, their, and the ramifications of them, please don't miss what you are chosen for. You're chosen for obedience. It doesn't say here that you're chosen for salvation. Now, that is used in one place, and that's in 2 Thessalonians. I am not ignorant of that. And people say, oh, you're, you're, you have this view, and you don't know the rest of the scriptures. And I just kind of smile at this. Oh, you don't know me then. Um, and so I, I'm very well aware of it. But we're going to look at the process of God's provision and the process of salvation of how we become chosen for obedience. And again, I would contend that all men are invited to obedience and that it is your response that then now you, having accepted that invitation, are now chosen to continue in obedience and to receive the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, which is an atonement or washing of your sin. And we are not going to reverse that. We're not going to flip this around and make it the other way. That somehow God washes you away so that you can believe. Okay, and that is error. It's just not in the scriptures. So let's go ahead and 
talk about this first prepositional phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And of course, as soon as we get into the concept of foreknowledge, reinforced with the idea of selection instead of chosen to, for obedience, but selected to get saved. Um, now foreknowledge comes in, and it's amazing how very learned men uh, have connected two concepts and made foreknowledge equal to foreselection. And again, they've taken election and made it, or chosenness, made it selection. And now they've taken foreknowledge and made it foreordained. In fact, later on in Peter, um, there's going to be the exact same Greek word that's translated here foreknowledge, and it's going to be called foreordained. Okay, and that's going to be referring to Jesus Christ here in just a chapter 2. So, we have this word that is inconsistently translated uh, because we try to pick some things up. Um, first of all, I want you to understand that Peter is the only one in Scripture that use, in the New Testament that uses foreknowledge as a noun. All right, He's the only one that uses it as a noun. Again, this is grammar. I'm sorry if you're not good at grammar. I'm trying to help you out here. Noun. All right, so as a noun, an object, a something, that foreknowledge is something, person, place, or thing, right? Idea, things like that. So foreknowledge, Peter's the only one that uses it that way in the New Testament. In the Septuagint, it is used in the Old Testament by some of those authors um, in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here we have it used here by Peter, and when I say Peter's the only one that uses it this way, we, and by the way, the next one isn't, the next use in, in 1 Peter 2 isn't a noun either. It's a verb. It's an action of God. He foreknew. So we have foreknew as a verb, but foreknowledge is only used by Peter here and in one other place. Let's go to that one other place because it's going to really give us some insight, and that's in the book of Acts. Yeah, it's not in Peter's writing. It's in Peter's speech. Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. <clears throat> and so I'm giving you every place the noun foreknowledge is used in the New Testament. <laughs> You've read the first one, now we're going to read the second one. Here we go. Let's pick up in his sermon, verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Keep reading. Uh, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. More of my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, why did I read all that extra? Well, you're going to find out if you, if you hang with me, okay? We have two different words in Peter's sermon here that they have combined, and everywhere that we hear 
the word prognosis, um, that's a Greek word, all right? So when you go to the doctor and you ask, what's the prognosis, what are you asking him? You're asking him, what's my future with this disease or illness? Where is this going to lead me to? What's going to happen from here on? What's the prognosis? And that's from the Greek word here called foreknowledge, which means pro, which is before. Gnosis is knowledge. Okay, what do you know before? What, what can you tell me what we're facing with this disease when you ask a doctor for a prognosis? And so we have taken a Greek word about knowing before, which sometimes means about I knew it before now. Okay, in Romans chapter 8, that's how Paul uses it. That, well, God knew these people before. And we, we not before they existed, but before now. And we use that kind of speech all the time, right? Oh, I knew that before. Somebody's trying to tell you something that they think you didn't know. And I said, well, I knew that before. Did you have foreknowledge? No, sometimes we use that word to talk about, I knew it before now. But that's not what this is talking about. And so in the use of prognosis here is that God knew something. But what we have done, every time we see the word prognosis, we have, we have made this connection because of this verse with another Greek word. And that other Greek word is translated here in the New King James as determined purpose. You see it there? God, him, in verse 23, being delivered by determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There are two separate Greek words. One is determined purpose, which we have used several places in God's word in the New Testament. Uh, in, in, not only about God, but about men, that they were determined, they had their purpose was to do, they wanted to accomplish this, they wanted to do this, um, and the foreknowledge of God. Now, we have a question is the determined purpose of God, as well as foreknowledge, or the determined purpose of someone else and the, with the foreknowledge of God? And so there's some translation and interpretive issues here a little bit, but we're just going to uh, talk about the determined purpose as distinct from foreknowledge. Please notice there's two separate words here. Peter comes to them, he says, listen, did God know ahead of time that he was going to send his son to die on the cross? Well, obviously. Here's proof of it. He showed it to David. King David knew ahead of time, so I'm sure God knew ahead of time. Because God is the one who let King David know this. God told David ahead of time, I am going to send a seed of David, and he will deliver the nations. You see it there? And so he says, your holy one will not see corruption. So David even knew that someone of his seed was going to be resurrected from the dead and was going to be holy. Your holy one, out of my seed. And so David says, I've, God's shown me some things of the future. And I'm going to rest in that. I foresaw it. And so we see that God, of course, knew that. And so we have the prophets all the way back, really, to Genesis in the, in the Eden, when God says, listen, uh, there's going to be a seed of a woman. Satan bruises heel. He's going to crush his head. The seed is going to crush the head of Satan. Did God foresee? Yes. Did he foreknow? Certainly. He knew what his plan was. 
He knew that he would have a plan and that that would be the seed of the woman. He knew it thousands of years later when he's talking to David, said, I'm going to make it the seed of David as well. So it's going to be a woman out of the line of David. And we're going to have this one who's going to be a holy one who's going to die but not see corruption. That is not rot, not decay. He's going to be resurrected. This is all anticipated. We have all the prophecies. And so Peter says, of course God foreknew this. David foreknew it. It shouldn't surprise you. None of this surprised God. You think you've won the victory, but, but that didn't last long, did it? Because after three days, three nights, there's the resurrection. Now you're on your heels. God was never on his heels. God was never surprised by any of this. And God had determined, whether it was, some people think that this is referring to the determined purpose they wanted to destroy him, Jesus Christ, um, or whether God's determined purpose, that is that um, I'm going to make provision for your salvation. God purposed to do that. And that, those two words, determined purpose, is one Greek word. And what theologians have done is everywhere foreknowledge is used, they have woven it to this other Greek word that isn't in our text today in 1 Peter of determined purpose. And therefore, God chose you because he foreknew or foreloved you, and, and they've added in the idea of determined purpose. Therefore, he has ordained for you to be saved and for others to be lost, which isn't in the verse at all. Even if you want to use that, he has ordained you to obey, which... Again, means that God is forcing you into a relationship. He's forced your will. I would contend that Peter's use of these two distinct words are two distinct ideas that should not be so carelessly interwoven. And that when we're referring to the work of Jesus Christ, obviously God back there at the beginning, knew he would make provision for men's condition so that they could come into a right relationship with him. God knew he was going to do that. And God was determined to do that. At just the right time, God died. Jesus, Jesus died for the ungodly. So he not only determined who, he determined when, he determined where, he determined how, he prophesied and said even about the uh, role of Judas Iscariot, um, God knew all that. And remember, we talked about that in John. Woe to the one that does it, but someone had to do it, and God determined that he was going to be uh, foresought, forestated it in prophecy, and so we had a full knowledge that one of his own was going to betray him. But woe to that one who chose to do that, who made that act of will. And so we are... When we look at the foreknowledge of God, we want to be careful to make sure we distinguish it from the determined purposes of God. That God, when we come to Jesus Christ, I have no problem with that because here it is made very clear that, that Peter's saying, listen, God not only foreknew this, but it was a determined purpose. What was God's determined purpose? He wanted to save men. And that required a sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood of his own son. None of that would have accomplished if it wasn't 
a determined purpose of God. God made all that happen. Okay? The virgin didn't conceive by some freak of nature. God made that happen. Correct? God intervened in human history and engaged and made his purpose accomplished at just the right time, in just the right place, with just the right people. Because he wanted to save us. That was his determined purpose. We're not talking about his election in eternity past of who would and who would not be saved. But rather, that he would provide for everyone's salvation. And so, we come now to, your, to the election. Now that we can disassociate determined purpose from foreknowledge, let's go back to 1 Peter and see what foreknowledge is if it's not determined purpose. We are chosen for obedience according to the prognosis of the Father. Okay, let's put the Greek word in there, because you guys have a better idea probably of what prognosis means, because of what you expect from doctors, than you know of the word foreknowledge. Through the foreknowledge, through the prognosis of the Father, God the Father, no one has seen any time, Talked about that last Sunday evening, Lord's Day evening. This is the, the mechanism of our being elect for obedience. And again, this is the way it is to happen, according to the foreknowledge of God. Not determinate by the foreknowledge of God, but according to it. This is the manner in which he has chosen. He has, his prognosis is, is that I will choose to bless everyone who obeys. Doctor, what's my prognosis? What's the future going to be? Well, your future is heaven if you choose to obey. And every wise doctor will say, well, it depends upon whether you take care of yourself, take your meds, and this, this, this. And they'll give you all the conditionalities, won't they, of good health. That's, that's the foundation of their prognosis, of their telling you ahead of time what your future is going to be. The prognosis is built upon all these factors. Well, the prognosis of God was your obedience. This is the mechanism by which God wants to bless you, is, well, you're going to have to respond by obedience. This is the, the through. through it's not that the foreknowledge of God was the causation, because foreknowledge does not equal cog, uh, causation. It doesn't cause something. And so I can know and say, here's what I am looking for. I am waiting to bless, and I am willing to bless all who obey. And once we make that determination, I want to be obedient to God. I want to obey, I want to have my faith, and I want Him to be, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Now, I have the prognosis of blessing on my life. 
but not without continued obedience. Remember, we have a relationship now. We have surrendered ourselves to him. And you're going to find submission being a big part. Remember, I told you the, one of the second themes of Peter is about relationships, and it's all about submitting to one another. Because that's the basis of our relationship with God, is submission. This is the prognosis of the Father. You are elect through that because he has determined, he has set it as his purpose in eternity past that he will bless all who obey. And thus, he knows that he will bless those who obey. Does he know who individually will obey? Certainly, I'm sure within the breadth and depth of the knowledge of God um, that he has that information. But having information is not equal to causation. I have information that is pretty sure to me that the sun will set this evening. Based upon experience and everything else, the sun's probably going to set over here this evening. I have that information. I'm not causing it to set over here this evening, am I? And this is what we need to distinguish. And so here we have the knowledge of God, the foreknowledge, the prognosis of God upon the situation, saying, listen, I will bless those who will be obedient. What does God demand of the other nations in the Old Testament? You need to bless Israel. If you bless Israel, I'll bless you. That's the conditionality of his desire to bless all. Does he know who will and who will? Certainly. But that doesn't mean he caused those nations to bless him or not bless, or to bless Israel or not bless them. And so he's not causing disobedience, neither is he causing obedience by his knowledge of that. Do not confuse foreknowledge, prognosis, with determined purpose. His determined purpose is to save everyone. And he knows what that will require, require people to be obedient. But he also knows that not everyone will be obedient. So we have this term of narrowness called chosenness or electness, not selection. God's selecting who will obey and who will not obey. But rather, God blessing those who follow his purpose of blessing, which is obedience. And so it is through the foreknowledge of God that we have this opportunity to respond. It's a little complicated, and I understand that. Um, but again, we recognize that this is the Father's role. He knows that we have a need. He knew that long before you existed. He knew that in the garden, as soon as there was sin, before any person had ever died, he knew we would need to be redeemed if we're going to be in a relationship with him. This all he knew ahead of time. Even before the foundations of the earth, he knew the risk of creating man in his image with an independent will. He knew the risk of that. And so, yes, when we get later on in 1 Peter, when we come to that passage, we're going to get this whole sermon again later on. <laughs> he knew that he would have to send his son, Jesus Christ. He knew there would have to be a sinless sacrifice. He knew it had to be originated from him. He knew that it had to be the second person of God who was right there with him. He knew all this. And his determined purpose was to meet your need. To send his son to die for your sin. Do not confuse that with 
selecting who will and who will not get saved. That is not here in the text. It is not implied by the word foreknowledge, and that is why I think Peter very carefully does not use that term when it comes to your obedience. That determined purpose of God is always reserved for what God is going to do through Jesus Christ in his life. He's going to send him. He's going to allow you to crucify him, but he's going to raise him from the dead. And that's perhaps why I'm not going to complain too bitterly about using foreordained later on in this book. Because God has purposed to send Jesus Christ. Because the second use of the word foreknowledge and foreordained prognosis in this book is a verb and it applies to God with reference to Jesus Christ, not to you. For you, what is the foreknowledge of God? I'm going to bless everyone who obeys. That's the, that's the open door for us. Through the foreknowledge of God, I can, I'm chosen for obedience. And God knew what we were capable of doing. And that is one thing we still hold a capacity to. Even unregenerate man there have the capacity to understand the need to obey God. That's why we confront them with it. And I can confront people with the law and they can say, I've broken that law, I deserve judgment. They still have the, the capacity to understand that, by and large, until their consciences are completely fried. Oh boy, I've gone really late, haven't I? No, I haven't. I just can't see the clock. No. God knows your capacity that you can choose to obey. He knows he made you. <laughs> he made Adam and Eve. He knows what you're made out of. Yes, dirt. But he also knows what you possess, and you possess the image of your father. Which goes all the way back to the image of God that was given to Adam and Eve. You have that authority, and you have that capacity to choose. God knew all this. And so he provided a mechanism for you to receive the goodness that he has for you. This is the work of the Father in the triune description of what the believer enjoys, the pilgrim, the elect, the chosen one. What do we enjoy? We enjoy the benefits of the triune God. And the foreknowledge of God means that he knows what is required. He knows what it takes. And so he sends his Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and of holiness and of judgment, right? Because he knows you need that. He knows you need to be convicted. Because it's easy to rationalize our sin. It's easy to have other people come along and say, and excuse it, or say, well, we all do it, it's not really that bad. He knows all that, right? So I rejoice in the foreknowledge of God, the prognosis of God says you need, you really need, in order to come in right relationship, in order to move you to obedience, you need a convictor. God knows that. So through the foreknowledge of God, and then we're going to talk about the Spirit next, is this convicting work. And then once we're convicted and we respond by faith believing, then that work doesn't disappear. It transitions into the word sanctification we're going to talk about more next week. Lord willing. And so we trust in the foreknowledge of God that he has done everything necessary for us 
to be able to obey and to come into a relationship that we could, any one of us, be the, the elect. Not just Israel, not just Jewish people, not people keeping the law, but anyone. God has known ahead that he wanted to bless all nations. He has made it very clear all the way back to the garden. He has made it clear to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He made it very clear to David. He has made it clear through the prophets that this is his purpose. He has he desires to bless all. That is his determined purpose, to provide for your salvation. What does he know? He knows what you're made of. He knows what you need. He knows what you, what's required of you. He knows how to bring you to the point of decision to either accept or reject him, to either obey or disobey. That's his prognosis. And so we are blessed that he knew what we needed. He knew we need a Savior. Oh, that we would understand foreknowledge, not as God selecting who gets saved, but selecting the manner, the mechanism, the, the path of salvation. That he knew you. Not as an individual that I'm going to save you and not that next person next door. No, I know you, plural, in fact, overwhelmingly, this is not talking to the individual, this is talking to the group, pilgrims. To those of you who are, have made a profession of faith, who have started on that way, you are walking in the prognosis of the Father. Yes, I am. Not by selecting the individual, but by providing all that is needed. God knew what I needed. He knew I needed a Savior. He knew I needed a blood sacrifice. And no, that's not my child. I'm not going to serve up my child to a God like Molech. I needed a true innocent sacrifice that was willing to die for me. God knew that. He knew I needed conviction. He knew I needed to understand my guilt. That's why he gave us the law. You see, all of this was built upon the foreknowledge of God that said, listen, even before creation, because he looks down and says, if I'm going to create a being comparable a little bit to me, I'm going to lend them my image and the authority to make independent choice. If I'm going to do that, then there's a strong risk that they could reject me because they're going to choose their path. And when they if and when they reject me, I'm going to have to provide for that, for their way to come back because <laughs> I love them. So what's God's prognosis? He knew well ahead what you needed. We're not talking about selecting individuals. We're talking about knowing your needs. You need a Savior. You needed, the, you needed the law to know that you're, you couldn't keep it. <laughs> Rightly, does Paul describe it as your schoolmaster? To slap your hand and say, you dumb kid, learn something. Learn that you can't keep the law. You can't be good enough for heaven. He said, it took him 2,000 years to do that? We're under the law for all those years? Yes, because we're stubborn. He knew that about us, too. He knew that when that you were going to need convicting. He knew all of your requirements to, to crack open the door for you to obey. He knew all that. And so, well, I don't second guess who gets saved. 
No, no, no. I know God had a prognosis before the foundation of the earth for the dilemma of man. This isn't about choosing Kirk. This is about choosing everything Kirk needed to get saved so that I could be obedient, so that anyone could be obedient if they chose to. So we are chosen for obedience by the foreknowledge of God. And Peter links that to his provision in Acts, not to his selection of the recipients. This is not about selecting recipients. It's about selecting provision. God knew what you needed. Long before you needed it, he knew. Because he knew how he was going to create man. And he knew the likelihood of men going into disobedience. And he knew that that path back out of disobedience into obedience and faith was going to have to be initiated by him because you would never do it. God knew all this and made a way for you to escape. And for all men everywhere to repent. That's why in John, the Spirit convicts the world. doesn't say the Spirit convicts the special selected ones. Because that's not what election is about. It's not about selecting individuals. No, the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this is our prayer. Lord, keep convicting. You want someone to get saved? You better pray. Pray the Lord, don't stop convicting them. Because they need it. And God knows they need it. God knew they needed it before he even created man. He knew. If I'm going to give them my image, this is what it's going to take. To have a relationship with them. God knew that well ahead. Does he have purpose in that? Yes. The determined purpose was not who gets saved. The determined purpose was that all men everywhere could get saved. God wanted to make sure there was enough provision for that. Let's pray.